So I'm feeling I'm feeling like you know the world is starting to change. And Very nice. So you, I, get, I, um, you gotta get two shots, or do you have the one dose? No, no, I gotta get two. Uh, here in in Brazos County, we're getting the Moderna. So I, I gotta get I gotta get a second uh, in mid-April, and then uh, gotta wait a couple of weeks, and then I can kick up my heels. Maybe we could even get a drink together in person again. That would be something. I'm looking forward to that. Me too. Well, it's good to see you. Uh, we have our guest, Matthias Portner. Matthias, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, we're glad to have you. I think we have uh, tried to do this at least once in the past. And uh, another uh, hazard of COVID was that that got bumped as well. And then uh, so we've had a little bit of a heart. And I think actually we were going to do this, what, a couple weeks ago? And were we, we going to Weren't we going to do it during the winter apocalypse? We were going to do it during the winter apocalypse. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Well, I'm very excited to be with you guys tonight. Well, we are very, uh, very excited to have you. Um, why don't, uh, since we haven't had you on the pod before, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about you and um, some of your interests. And uh, you've been with us at the Bush School now, I think, for two years, I think was what we were recapping a minute ago. And we haven't had the pleasure of having you on our show. So uh, give us a little bit of background on you, if you don't mind. Not at all. Well, thanks, Justin. Um, well, I'm a faculty member of the Bush School. My research focuses on political participation and representation. Um, most of it focuses on Latin America, um, but I've also more recently done some work in my native Germany on uh, some related issues of social participation, but they're looking at uh, discrimination of immigrants and everyday social interactions. Very nice. And does that mean you're in the International Affairs Department? Does that make Greg, your boss? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> to, to the extent that academics have bosses. Yeah. I, I love I being in the other department. I don't have to have Greg as a boss. I can just give him a hard time. He doesn't have to do my <laughs> That's right. You, he has no respect for me whatsoever. Because <laughs> I have no power over him. That's right. Uh, so I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> well it's good to, uh, thanks for joining us um and we have promised people that we would talk a little bit about latin american politics but um before we jump into that greg has there been anything in the the news it feels weird not to be jumping from crisis to crisis have we have we missed anything we should mention before we jump into uh latin american politics it actually feels great that we're not we don't have to jump from crisis to crisis i mean really important things are happening. I mean, this $1.9 trillion American recovery plan or whatever we're calling it, I think is enormously important, but it's like normal. It's normal politics. And, 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 and so, you know, you don't have to treat it like it's a huge crisis. And, you know, the Biden administration today that leaked out that they're going to put forward a $3 trillion infrastructure and, and government spending plan with a ta with taxes. Uh, and, and, you know, I think we're getting back to normal governance, which is which is great. We're not governing by tweet. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine on the on the phone today and he said, you know, it, it, no wonder uh, the, the new, the, you know, the cable te stations don't get all excited about this. What's the story? Man goes to office. Man considers options. Man consults advisors. Man proposes policy. I mean, this is kind of what politics is, right? It's not, 
It's not, you know, bizarre tweets and, 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 uh, and, strange, and strange initiatives that have no kind of uh, policy process behind them. So yeah, hooray for the return to normal politics. I think it's all gonna be very important, but it's not sensational. Well, maybe we did a little bit better job of uh, Orphan uh draining the swamp. I mean, maybe we actually made a little bit of draining the swamp out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't like the metaphor because. Well, I just don't like the metaphor. Yeah. Well, one thing that has uh, remains, I think, is a is a pressing challenge, which maybe is a nice segue into some issues in Latin America. Is uh, is the is the migrant crossing at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and so I was hoping maybe, because this was one of the things that um, during the previous administration, I spent a lot of time uh, yelling, maybe is the word, righteous indignation is maybe another word. And, uh, you know, what I see today is uh, more pictures of children in, in uh, detention kind of, buildings and what looks like cages with these aluminum foil looking uh, blankets and there's continue to be a little bit of a surge in the border. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, to your knowledge, what's what's going on and uh, what is, what's causing some of this to continue to be a challenge and if there's any hope that under a, uh, under a new administration, maybe we'll have some better outcomes uh, over the next couple of years. Yeah, definitely. A very important um, topic that you're raising there, Justin. Um, I mean, overall, the, the the new administration has obviously been well received across most large parts of the region. And um, we've seen a return to normal relations with many countries in the region. And um, one area in which the new administration has not maybe not um, implemented policy changes to the same extent that um, some people might have hoped uh, would be with regards to Mexico. Um, obviously, the uh, Trump administration had a very particular uh, set of very strict immigration policies in place, including the program known as Remain in Mexico, that forced 70,000 asylum seekers to wait in Tijuana, Sierra Juarez, and other border cities while the cases would be uh, would won through U.S. courts. Um, and um, the Biden administration has maintained some of those restrictive um, policies that have been put uh, into place by the Trump administration while loosening some others at the same time. Um, I think most notable here is that the Biden administration has refused to expel migrant children who arrived at the border without adults. That's a major shift um, relative to the, the practice of the previous administration. Um, but in recent weeks, we, we have seen in, somewhat of an increase in um, asylum applications and um, officials have scrambled to keep pace with this increase and a number of um, shelters in central Texas and elsewhere have reopened um, and uh, children have been um, sent to new shelters, including the former camp for um, for oil workers in West Texas and at the Dallas Convention Center from what I hear. Um, at the same time that the Biden administration has been pressuring Mexico to, Mexico to, to do more to stop migrants. Um, and um, just last week, Mexico had announced that it would uh, that that it would send hundreds of immigrant agents and National Guard troops uh, to its southern border, which is something we've uh, started seeing today 
where um, Mexico has launched new measures to um, stop crossings um, at its southern border of Guatemala, for example? Well, it's um, I, one of the things that has happened in the last uh, few few weeks. Uh, you mentioned sort of the Remain in uh, Remain in Mexico program. One of the consequences that, as you mentioned, were camps right across the border. And one of the one of the I guess good pieces of news that I learned as part of this is the the podcast last year sponsored a sort of short short series on uh, the camp just across the border in Matamoros, and um, I, I was able to, uh, with some former Bush school students and one current Bush school student to go before COVID actually go down there and visit with the camp and see um, some of those things firsthand. And uh, the camp in Morse actually was was finally cleared out, um, which was, after seeing it on the, on the ground there, was something that was just wonder, some, some wonderful piece of news. What is, um, what's, what's driving, just as a refresher for the audience, I mean, why... Why do we need Mexico to play a larger role in uh, at their own southern border? Is it still the case that a lot of the uh, children and individuals arriving at the at the Texas border are still coming from further south than Mexico? Is that still the case? Oh yeah, that's definitely still the case. We, we see a lot of uh, migrants coming from Central America, um, fleeing fleeing from um, prosecution as a result of widespread um, civil unrest. Uh, civil war-like uh, uh, conditions, um, and um, it, we, we don't see any, uh, there, we don't see any, any um, shift in that happening. So uh, the number of people f fleeing from that, um, they're going to keep on coming. And um, uh, obviously, it's important to work with Mexico in this context, but this is not something, something that Mexico is going to be able to solve. Um, even with the help from the U.S., it's something that is going to require more long-term investment um, in Central America, um, trying to get to some of these root courses. So what are... But, we, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I, so, I mean, that's the thing. Mexico, I think, increasingly, right, is just a transit area. Right. And there, there's still plenty of Mexicans who come into the United States, but it's, much, it's a much more normal exchange. And, and, and these migrants who are seeking asylum you know, uh, are, are, are more from Central America than, than from Mexico. And these Central American countries, as you said, are, are kind of a mess these days, but they're small countries. Do you think that, you know, the Biden administration is talking about a billion dollars? You know, I think a billion dollars in a place as big as Mexico is a drop in the bucket, but in small places like, like Honduras and Guatemala, can, can, foreign aid in that amount actually make a difference when the political systems are as uh, damaged as they are? It's a tough question. Um, I think the only the only way forward, um, thinking a little bit more long term here, is going to be to work with, um, with Central America to invest heavily in development. Um, you mentioned Guatemala, El Salvador is obviously you know, crucial in this context um, as well to work um, to to create economic opportunities locally and um, to curb um, the widespread uh, influence of organized crime in this context. Yeah. So is that something that an outside power can do? 
I don't think an outside power can do it alone. Um, and there are um, forces domestically that are working towards that goal, but um, I think any support they can get um, is going to help and go a long way in that context. So the United States has to pick, I don't want to say pick winners, but they have to pick sides. Not necessarily sides. I mean, the U.S. has picked sides on this for, for quite a while. Um, well, that's true. no shift in the policy here. Um, and I think um, the the commitment of um, the par- to certain priorities in, in development in, the, in Central America and the region more broadly um, is also nothing that's new, that's uh, focusing on projects that can uh, help curb or decrease um, the influence of organized crime, on the other hand, is going to be tough because uh, these are um, I'm no expert in organized crime in Latin America, but um, these are um, very, very powerful networks in, in, in many areas, um, especially in Central America. Um, the state does not have a monopoly of force effectively, and um, these organizations, these institutions um, uh, have parastatal capacities in those areas. So there's only so much you can do, I suppose, um, in, in working with the state um, in those areas. But obviously, that's not all of Central America. And um, there are policies that could could be used to uh, create economic opportunities in the region. So does this, a uh, our, our tagline for tonight was Latin American politics, which is a pretty broad category. Um, so we talked a little bit about Central America. Are there... Are there similar challenges uh, further south in South America, or the is the kind of situation different in South America? Just, I mean, I know we're way over generalizing here, but what are some of the trends that uh, or current challenges a little bit further south? Do they mirror those in Central America, or are they a little bit different? I think, I mean, one challenge that the whole region, both um, South and Central America, um, and, and uh, North America. Um, if you want to think about uh, the large part of Mexico, are facing is the COVID crisis. And Latin, we are affected by that here in the US, but um, in Latin America, because of the structure of the economy, people are even more affected by that. In most places in Latin America, about 50% of the workforce are part of what's called the informal sector, the informal economy. These are people that don't have regular uh, labor contracts. Um, they might be uh, self-employed, working as street vendors. They might be day laborers. They're um, in very precarious, often very precarious um, labor arrangements without any kind of labor contract. And um, that also means um, if you if you don't go out and work, you're not going to have any income. And uh, combine that with low savings rates, um, that means these people are l- large segments of the population need to go out to work on a regular basis. And um, that obviously has caused some problems in terms of the spread of COVID all along, makes it much harder for people to um, stay home and uh, prevent the spread of the virus in this context and um, has affected um, the whole region. And uh, that's one challenge. The other challenge is access to the vaccine. um, the it has been very hard, not just for Latin America, but uh, other um, countries and other developing regions as well, um, to get access to the vaccine. And um, Mexico now has uh, received an allotment of some 
um, uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccines from the US, um, being the only country uh, to whom we have uh, given uh, vaccine, with whom we have shared vaccines thus far. But that's obviously, um, it, while it's an important gesture, it's a uh, drop in, in a large bucket. Um, and um, we've seen um, countries in the region rely on Russia and China to get alternative vaccines, which um, in terms of strategic thinking from a US perspective um, is uh, something that um, ought to be considered as well, I suppose. Yeah. And nevertheless, even countries such as Chile, which has been the leader in terms of vaccines at this point, I think has about 29% of the population inoculated with at least one shot. Um, we still continue to see growing infection rates. So um, large parts of the region are still uh, going to be in this for a while. Yeah. Well, I want to shift a little bit. Um and talk a little bit about another region, a uh, region that you also do, that you mentioned you've done some work in, uh, and uh, that also has migration challenges as well, which is the, the context of migration in, in Germany and some of the challenges that Germany has uh, faced uh, from in migration. So maybe you could set the context a little bit there for us as a shift from uh, some of the challenges in Latin America, and then we could talk a little about some of your recent work there. Absolutely. Um, issues or questions of um, immigration uh, are obviously have been on the um, high on the agenda across Europe uh, as a result of wars in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. But we've seen a large number of refugees, actually the largest refugee crisis, uh, crisis since uh, World War II um, over the last um six, seven years, leading to a sharp rise in immigration um, from the Middle East, from predominantly Muslim countries to Europe. And um, media across Europe have, and some politicians have emphasized ethnic, religious, and cultural differences between these recent immigrants and the majority populations in, in host countries. And we've seen a backlash um, against immigration uh, in recent years. Um, in Germany, for example, which has been the EU country that received the largest number of um, refugees in this context, almost 2 million between 2015 and 2020. Um, we saw, especially uh, before COVID, obviously large protests are uh, rare and far between these days, but um, in between 2015 and um, between two, uh, in, in 2019, um, we saw a number of large scale protests, um, anti-immigrant protests, um, across Germany, especially uh, in the former East, that are indicative of um, growing opposition to immigration. And um, that has been the context in which um, I've explored some of these topics um, in Europe as well. So, Greg, I want to bring you in here. Um, and as, as Germany does have in-migration from the Middle East, Middle East is, is, been, is your area of expertise. Um, is it a surprise that there are clashes in culture between large uh, influxes from uh, the Middle East and German culture, given kind of the differences across those cultures? Is that something that uh, you have any insight into? I, I, I hate to go to culture right away when we talk about these things. Uh, 
Yes, there are differences, but I think any immigrant community coming into a new, especially an immigrant community that's, that's you know, leaving war and chaos and disruption and civil conflict is, uh, is, is leaving not because they want to, but because they have to. Yeah. And, and they're not, if you will, prepped up, right? Uh, they haven't had a lot of time to prepare for this. They're on the run. And I, I think that, uh, you know, inevitably there are differences. These people don't speak the language when they get there. And yes, there are what we would commonly call cultural differences that I think we can, that can be, you know, exaggerated in terms of, you know, this religion versus that religion. Uh, but but no, there are there are differences in in you know basic things like the role of women in public life. I mean that that there there's a difference there, and 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 and, and that does create tensions, I think, or can create tensions. But but let's face it, th these are issues that uh, responsible politicians throughout Europe, at least in my reading, and particularly in Germany. And Prime Minister Merkel, one can criticize her on all sorts of grounds, but I actually think that that she's been a hero in in dealing with the migrant influx into Germany in a humane and uh, an organized way. Uh, and I'd like to hear more from Matthias about that. But it does seem to me that that there's a fundamental issue in many European countries, maybe not so much in Germany, but in certainly in Italy, where you know, you, you've got a labor situation where the indigenous population is, uh, is uh, reproducing at below replacement rate. So there's a labor draw, and there's been a labor draw into Southern Europe for decades, well, decades, at least a couple of decades, where, where people have come from North Africa and, and now I think increasingly from, from Central and Southern Africa through Libya, a, a largely ungoverned space now, because there's, not, not just because they're, they're fleeing political and economic conditions, but also because there is a labor market in Europe. And, and uh, how you integrate an immigration policy with the labor needs of, of these countries without alienating, you know, if you will, domestic labor, seems to me to be a huge challenge, but, but not an insuperable one. Uh, so, I, I, you know, Amer Europe's not America, right? The United States has been set up as a country of immigrants, you know, for 250 years and, and you know, there's all sorts of issues in that, but it's not unusual in the United States for immigrants to come in as much as you might want to, as some political figures might want to make it a crisis. But in Europe, it's a little different. But there is this structural issue of, 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 of labor markets. And so I don't know, that, that's, I, I'm talking, now, now I'm in things that I don't know anything about. So. <laughs> Well, one of the good things about being co-hosts is I can just occasionally put you on the spot and see, uh, see where that takes us. But uh, maybe we should turn back to Matthias on this <laughs> and uh, give us a little bit more about the kind of, well, really, I mean, 
your work in this is exactly trying to understand how to combat, I guess, find common civic norms um, for encouraging uh, peaceful integration and, and uh, kind of a multicultural society. So give us a little background, maybe, Matthias, on the, uh, the academic work you've been, you've been doing in this area. Yeah, thank you. Um, as, as, as Greg was saying, um, where some states in, in Europe might have had a longstanding under, self-understanding as immigrant countries, France, for example, historically has um, understood itself as a country receiving immigrants. The UK has a longstanding immigration history, but um, much of Europe has not historically. They, those countries, such as Germany, for example, have received uh, large groups of immigrants in the past, uh, but never really started to think of itself as an immigrant country or a uh, country uh, with, large, with a large immigrant population. That's something that we've seen over the last 15, 20 years um, very much um, change, um, largely um, in response to um, uh, growing immigration more recently. And it raises questions about um, about how to, um, what kind of immigration policies to pursue in this context. And as I mentioned before, there has been a lot of um, anti-immigrant backlash, we see widespread anti-immigrant attitudes um, among um, people living in Germany already, among natives uh, in this context. And um, what my work in this area does is, on the one hand, it tries to understand what kind of differences between host populations and immigrant minorities cause discrimination by natives. And um, on the other hand, trying to understand what can be done to reduce discrimination by natives, what can be done um, in particular to see whether shared social norms and ideas can be used crucially to overcome some of this discrimination that we see in this context. And um, this work very much speaks to a, a growing literature that emphasizes that cultural differences are crucial drivers of prejudice and discrimination against uh, immigrant minorities, perceptions of cultural differences. But often these um, perceived cultural differences will be based in outdated or incorrect stereotypes. And um, we can talk more about um, some examples for that in a minute, maybe. But um, they do cause real prejudice and discrimination against immigrants. And um, it's very important to understand what those perceptions are and what can be done to uh, mitigate them. Um, in my opinion. Yeah, so maybe we could just jump right into that. I mean, what, what are some of the perceptions and then how well do those, you know, where is the, when is the, when do the perceptions overlap with you know, reality and when do, when do perceptions um, kind of overlap with outdated uh, views uh, from, the, from the natives? How does, how is that kind of playing out in the German context do, uh, handling this influx of particularly uh, Middle Eastern and um, maybe predominantly Muslim Muslim immigration. I mean, what is that? What are the perceptions by the native uh, Germans, and when is that accurate, and when is that a little bit more kind of outdated? Well, um, so in some of my recent work, uh, much of this work is co-authored with Danny Choi at the University of Pittsburgh and Nicholas Sambanis at the University of Pennsylvania. At some of this um, recent work, we have looked at um, two specific stereotypes. One is a negative stereotype about immigrants um, not being civic-minded or not being committed to the local communities. Um, and um, we focus on um, 
a very widely spread social norm in Germany about anti-littering, um, to um, which is very widespread in Germany and it signals uh, civic mindedness. And we um, used this this norm in an experimental setup uh, in, in in a study in which we observe the behavior of um, of unknowing citizens who go about their lives um, in, in everyday situations to see what happens when when they observe um, immigrants who they think um, are not civic minded, who who they think are more likely to litter in public, et cetera. There are lots of other nasty stereotypes attached to this. Um, when they see an immigrant like that enforce this um, anti-litter norm that's um, so deeply held in Germany um, as a way of signaling that they're culturally integrated, as a way of signaling that they're committed to um, uh, the civic community uh, in this context, and we observed whether that can help um, whether that can help reduce some of the discrimination that they would experience otherwise. Um, so that would be one of the um, stereotypes um, I've looked at in these studies. The other one is related to perceptions about um, gender uh, perceptions about gender equality uh, norms in this context. Um, many um, people uh, in Germany, and um, interestingly enough, in particular women, do um, think that um, uh, that Muslim women have different, um, uh, maybe less egalitarian uh, ideas about gender equality. And what we show in one of our experiments is that um, this can the stereotype um, about that in a way projects gender oppression onto Islam um, can lead to discrimination in these kinds of contexts and these kinds of everyday interactions between natives and immigrants. Um, and in particular among um, uh, women that can uh, lead to um, significant discrimination. Men also discriminate, but they uh, discriminate for other reasons as we show in one of our studies. Interesting. Well Matthias, there, I mean, there is a bit of history here, right? I mean, even though Germany has not been uh, uh, a, a landing spot for immigrants the way France and, and, and Great Britain have been, there's a, you know, from the, from the 60s, right, the gastarbeiters, the guest workers have come in from Turkey. Uh, a lot of them are Kurdish Turks. And, and you're now having, you know, second, even third generation uh, of of the original worker migrants into Germany uh, uh, taking a role in German society, right? So has there been any kind of lessons learned from that? Or is there any sense in Germany of we've done this before, how did we do it? Or is that just seen as something completely different? Um, I, I wish I could say that people uh, had a sense that things had been done well in the 60s and 70s and lessons could have been learned from that. But the approach to, um, I mean, it's the, the name Gastarbeiter, guest workers already implies, was an understanding that um, these people, these migrants, were only going to be here as guests for a short time, that they were not going to participate in the social and political life of the country, which um, in many cases obviously was incorrect and very naive uh, from, the, from the very beginning. Um, and more importantly, it's uh, very different from how people understand migration today. Um, so I think 
I agree that there's a longstanding um, tradition of migration to Germany, but um, only in the last 15, 20 years, I think, has the country come to, to grips with that and started to think about what that means, um, has started to um, uh, realize that um, these communities are very much part of what, what makes Germany, Germany, contemporary Germany, Germany, and is part of the national identity in a way. Um, but that was a long process. Um, so in a way, um, the more recent immigration, um, uh, the more recent immigration encountered a very different state at this point. The, uh, in terms of public administration, for example, um, Germany starting, starting in 2006, for the first time had a cabinet level uh, position uh, for uh, someone uh, responsible for integration questions. Um, and this role, this position has gained more and more uh, power over the last 15 years, um, more influence. It's still um, not a powerful ministry, but um, it shows the centrality of, um, this, of immigration questions at the federal level to some extent. Uh, more importantly, um, I think the, um, the success behind um, the, the very rapid integration that we have seen of many of the refugees that have come to Germany since 2015 is not the result of government policies. It's mm -hmm. the result of um, local communities uh, being very um, active and involved in, in helpful local civil society organizations playing a very active role in um, organizing um, language classes, in organizing, especially in the 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 height of the so-called refugee crisis, 2015, 2016, starting with the summer of 2015, um, the state was um, not well prepared for this, and uh, local act, lo local volunteers played a crucial role in providing language classes and trying to find housing beyond the short-term camps, trying to find long-term um, uh, housing options for um, these recent arrivals trying to integrate them into the communities. And um, we've seen that um, uh, work, I'd say overall quite well. Um, this has led to very different integration to, from what we saw in the 60s and 70s, um, arguably in many areas, yeah. So tell me, the, the, the wave of the guest workers, mm -hmm. they were not given citizenship, but how has the citizenship question developed for for the the, the 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 children and grandchildren of those original migrants and and you know you you emphasize that when those folks were, were brought in in the 50s and in the 60s especially it was believed that they would be temporary turned out that they weren't but is there a belief that the current migrant wave will be temporary as well or is there more a sense that these people are probably here to stay um, I, I'd say the on the latter question really depends on who you ask. Um, I think um, many many of the refugees themselves would like to go back to the country, but it doesn't look like um, thinking about Syria in particular being the largest um, origin of, of refugees in this context. It doesn't look like that's um, going to be uh, possible anytime soon. And as people spend uh, more time living somewhere else. Um, integrating somewhere else, speaking the language, uh, built, making a uh, living for themselves. They're obviously, um, even even if they have 
the intention of growing back, that's going to become less likely over time as kids grow up there, speak, uh, learn to speak German. Um, I mean, it's quite impressive to see the, um, the, um, how quickly um, many of the refugees uh, picked up German. And um, I just saw a statistic the other day that at this point, um, over 50% of um, uh, refugees who have arrived to Germany in, in this context um, are now gainfully employed out of the ones that, that are within an age range that they uh, uh, would pursue, might want to pursue a job. Uh, over 50% are gainfully employed. Um, so it's, um, this has happened very quickly. Um, and I would suspect that many of them are gonna, um, gonna stay even, even if they have the option of going back. I mean, we'll, we'll see. Um, the question of whether they will have an option to citizenship down the road, that's gonna depend on what kind of initial status they have, whether they were recognized, um, uh, whether they were recognized as having, I mean, were awarded asylum or just got um, a protection status um, and uh, the, the length of time that they um, would, it would be a couple of years before they would even have an option of pursuing citizenship in this context. Um, which brings me to the question of citizenship for earlier immigrant groups. Um, Germany traditionally has had a system um, of uh, sanguine, meaning citizenship is handed down through um, through birthright and not through or through blood in a way. Yeah, through the blood. Through, blood, through, through the, the blood, blood line and not by um, not based on usually the system that we have most countries in the Americas, where uh, the location of your birth determines your citizenship. Um, obviously, this, this clear divide between Europe and the Americas has uh, broken up to some extent um, in, in recent decades, but it's still uh, largely in place from what I understand. And um, in Germany, that's still the, the prominent system. Um, someone born to a German citizen gains German citizenship by birth and someone born in Germany does not automatically gain German citizenship, but can under certain conditions. This is something that came out of the um, reform of the citizenship um, uh, laws in the early 2000s, um, giving an option to um, uh, immigrants who have lived in Germany for a long time to actually have a path to citizenship. Um, uh, but one, one topic that um, was heatedly debated at the time was the question of dual citizenship, whether immigrants could maintain another citizenship once they naturalized. And uh, the, the question of um, uh, whether their children could have both citizenships. Um, so the, the model that was put into place, uh, uh, so-called option model, uh, allows kids or forces kids at age 18 to choose which passport they want to retain. That's mm -hmm. still the legal, the general principle. Germany, as a matter of policy, um, it tries to minimize dual citizenship um, uh, quite extensively. There's some exceptions to that, um, and these ex exceptions have gone, become more common in recent years. And uh, maybe going forward, we'll see um, some more liberalization of that policy area as well. So it was basically intermarriage that led to 
kind of the children and grandchildren of the guest workers becoming German citizens? No, so um, they they would, uh, if they were born um, in Germany and their parents have been living there for long enough or if they've been lived there long enough, um, they will be eligible uh, to um, pursue, to get German citizenship. And um, at this point, most second, third generation immigrants um, of those so-called guest workers are German citizens, yes. Okay. So I want to go back to the, uh, some of your recent work, Matthias, and it's, I thought it was really interesting the, uh, the use of littering as a, as a social norm to see whether people are violating it or not. And so I'm wondering what you found, and then I want to move from that context to this one that's a little bit more embedded in gender and religious uh, roles and norms and see if, if the same types of findings hold, because my sense is that, uh, that a lot of people are going to think about an informal norm like littering different than the, the more uh, tightly held identities around gender and uh, religion. So what, maybe tell us a little bit more about what you found in the context of, of littering as, as, a, as a starting point. Yeah, so for that study, um, my co-authors and I fielded um, an experiment in Germany in the summer of 2018 um, in which we created um, what could be described as a microenvironment of social interactions. Um, so in, um, in, a, in everyday um, settings where um, German natives were um, waiting for their trains, so in train stations, on the train platform, in front of these unknowing uh, bystanders, we uh, put on, you, can, you might want to call it a little skit, in which uh, some confederates, um, uh, undergraduate students uh, in Germany who were hired and trained, um, would um, play out a little um, iteration, a little um, uh, social interaction, uh, at the end of which one of the confederates um, seemed to be um, needing help. She had a paper bag and that seemingly tore and uh, some fruit, five oranges would drop onto the uh, platform and we would observe whether bystanders helped her. So we focus on these everyday um, social interactions to try to understand, um, to try to understand uh, discrimination of minorities in this context. We already know a lot about discrimination of minorities in more formal settings, for example, in the labor market and um, when dealing with uh, public bureaucracy. And these are really important interactions, but most of life is occupied by smaller events and yeah. seemingly mundane interactions. And the, our idea is that they can add up to something really important. So the interactions that natives and immigrants have on the street, at the train station or in the shopping mall or at the soccer field or uh, whatnot can play an immensely important role um, in shaping the perceptions that people have of each other. That's the idea here. And then if, if you have repeated small acts of hostility or discrimination, um, if you experience those as an immigrant, um, they can add up to death by a thousand cuts in a way and result in um, pervasive lasting barriers to um, contact between these groups. So that's that was the premise of the, um, the first study. And um, what we did it was um, we working with uh, confederates in these contexts, we um, put on this skit a total of a little over 1600 times, um, varying um, some elements of the skit, in particular, whether the person who needed help um, in this context 
was an immigrant, was was a was an actor who had an immigration background or not, um, whether she wore a hijab, no religious symbols or a cross, um, and whether she had enforced this deeply held uh, anti-literary norm of this context. And um, so we have those 14 different scenarios and uh, we played them through with a total of a little over 7,000 bystanders who didn't know that they were part of the study to observe how they would react, whether people would help um, her pick up um, her oranges, her uh, possessions in this context, and um, how long it would take people to, to help her, et cetera. And what we find is that people are very discriminatory, um, massively discriminatory against immigrants in this situation when religious differences were made salient by the hijab. So we find that women wearing a hijab were much less likely to receive any assistance um, than natives or than women without a hijab. And these are literally the same, the same actresses, one sometimes with a hijab, sometimes without it. Um, nothing else changed about them. Uh, so the hijab really makes religious differences salient um, and leads bystanders to withhold help in this context. Um, but uh, what we also find is that signaling um, that she shares um, deeply held local norms by enforcing this anti-literary norm at least partially offsets um, this discrimination effect that we find. It's not able to completely overcome it, uh, but it's able to reduce it significantly. Um, and that was... Um, the, the starting point for, for, for the second study, because one of the things that we found quite puzzling was that um, in this context, even German women who were, were very, very helpful towards um, native actors, native, native Confederates in this context, uh, would discriminate against veiled uh, Muslims, maybe, maybe even a little bit more so than uh, men in this context, than German men. And uh, we try to understand that, and that was the motivation for the second study that you mentioned, um, where we created a similar setup. We varied, um, we didn't have norm enforcement in this context, but we varied the characteristics of the actor who needed help. And uh, right before she, her possessions would fall, she would drop some um, lemons in this case onto the train platforms. Uh, she would conduct a phone call right in front of the bystanders um, in which she would express a position about gender equality. Because as I mentioned before, uh, we have these widespread stereotypes um, in Germany that uh, Muslim women um, hold uh, less uh, egalitarian, more traditional or conservative views on questions of gender equality. We wanted to see what happens um, when, when people find out that the stereotype is not correct, um, that this person, this woman actually holds very progressive um, or egalitarian uh, views on gender equality. Uh, does that, so if you get information that um, um, disagrees with the stereotype, does that lead um, people to change their behavior? And what um, did you find? Well, um, we found that it did. Uh, it had a massive effect on women, on uh, female bystanders. Um, the, um, as a matter of fact, it's able to completely offset discrimination against them. So um, veiled women expressing a progressive or 
uh, egalitarian position. So defying these widespread stereotypes um, that, that exist in, in society here are treated exactly the same way as uh, native women mm -hmm. um, in this context. And this, this is driven by uh, female bystanders. So women respond to this message. Men are unfortunately, I must say, ignorant towards it. Um, for men's behavior did not change, uh, no matter whether they heard the progressive message or um, they got the conservative or um, traditional message, or uh, we also had a mutual message that didn't reveal any position about gender equality in this context. Uh, but at least among women, it um, makes salient um, this shared uh, gender equality identity um, and is able to uh, overcome or reduce discrimination by defying stereotypes in this context, which um, yeah. I guess is very encouraging. It's interesting. I mean, the only criticism I would have is uh, I'm not really sure that we can compare across these these experiments because in the one, the 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 Confederates were dropping oranges, and in the other, they were dropping lemons. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's comparable. I mean, we really like the idea of citrus fruits and want to mix it up a little bit. And uh, so we, we actually, we, we tried different uh, options, different fruits and looked at their dispersal patterns and smoothiness. And so we settled on lemons for the second one to mix it up a little bit to diversify. Okay. Fruit what's, the, uh, what's the hypothesis on uh, the difference across men and women here and why the, why the women are... Uh, become less discriminatory in this context, but the men, men do not. Are there other experiments that might tell us something about this? Um, uh, yes, definitely. So our intuition um, um, going into the second experiment was that as a result of these widespread cultural stereotypes um, that project gender oppression onto Islam, um, that in particular uh, women, in particular progressive women, would um, see that, that for them it will create an identity threat by seemingly threatening heart one advances in, in women's rights. Um, because across both existing surveys and some of um, uh, my original work, uh, we find that um, women in these contexts, native women, view the hijab as an oppression of um, women and they believe that hijab wearing women hold the more traditional views than on about gender equality than muslim women and then non-muslim women in germany more so than men do so that their uh, this identity threat should be particularly strong among women that's what we find uh, very much so uh, which is not to say that men don't discriminate they do um they um they just discriminate for other reasons and to get at that uh, we did some some more follow up work, and among other things, did an implicit what's called an implicit association test. Um, many of you might have encountered them and might have uh, uh, done them in some context um, at some point in the context of um, uh, inter ethnic and inter uh, racial uh, relations in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, we tried to um, use this technique, which comes out of the social psychology literature to um, to get at uh, implicit or subconscious biases um, among men and women against veiled Muslims in this context. 
so we conducted this implicit association test on a um, sample of um, little over 1300 uh, German respondents um, uh, in a large survey. And we find that both men and women do have very strong um, implicit or subconscious uh, bias against veiled women. Um, but if anything, that this implicit bias is a little more pronounced among men. So it seems that the reasons for, for which uh, men and women discriminate might be slightly different, but both of them do. But it has obviously important policy implications to think about um, uh, why one might discriminate um, versus the other. Yeah, well, Greg, what I learned tonight um, is that there's a use for Confederates other than in my home state of Georgia. Um, well, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think you learned that, that you might not be able to compare apples to oranges. You can compare oranges to lemons. Um, Matthias, is there anything else from your work or things you have going on you'd like to let the, we're, we're kind of approaching the hour mark here. Is there anything else uh, since you're with us that you want to leave our, our audience with? Um, uh, the, yeah, the, the two studies I mentioned today, um, are part of a larger project, um, that my co-authors and I have been working on for a while, a book project that tries to understand more generally, um, what role norms and shared ideas can play, um, in overcoming discrimination against immigrants, um, in multicultural societies. And, um, it's a book project that. Uh, is near completion, and so keep an eye out uh, for the book. Uh, should be uh, coming out within a within a year or two. Great. Well, when it comes out, maybe we can have you back to uh, give us the final full picture and uh, highlight the work of you and your co-authors. And and we're going to have to have Matthias back to tell us about party systems in Latin America, because yeah. that is kind of how we pitch this. And, 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 <laughs> And we didn't talk about party systems in Latin America at all. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about party systems in Latin America. Sounds good. It would be a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So actually, we um, we're, we're mixing up our schedule a little bit after taking a break. Um, uh, next Tuesday, we'll go back to Tuesdays next week, and we'll have Eileen Teague with us, and we'll talk a little bit more about the relationship uh, between U.S. and Mexico. Uh, so we'll bring that to you in a in a week and a day. Um, and then I think after that, we only have one or two more episodes for the mm -hmm. uh, for the spring semester. It turns out this year snuck on by. Um, yes, thanks for, for joining us this evening. It was really a pleasure to hear about your work and to, uh, to learn a, bit, a little bit about uh, your work and your breadth of knowledge across both Latin American politics and um, the context of migration in Germany. So uh, thanks for sharing that with us this evening. Well, thank you very much, uh, Justin and Greg, for having me uh, with you tonight, and uh, I look forward to uh, listening to you next week. It's great fun. See you, Justin. Hey, Greg.